HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special Valentine's Day edition of Meet and 3, we put a twist on the lovey-dovey holiday. The mission statement is save the world through silliness and chocolate, and in parentheses, launch a chocolate bar into outer space. But I'm having um, some conflict in the board members with the parentheses. That's okay. He cited that in his area there used to be 30 dairy farms and now there are three. You know, dessert was political, and what you had on the dessert table said more about you than other markers of success. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news and storytelling roundup wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. Today on the show, we have DJ Cherish the Love, otherwise known as Cynthia Malloran. Cynthia can be followed on Twitter and Instagram at DJ Cherish the Love. That's DJ Cherish the L-U-V. Cynthia was an amazing guest, and she talked to us about her career as a DJ and her life growing up in the Lower East Side uh, during the 80s, uh, an accident that she had which left her rendered with a form of amnesia and a, her battle with breast cancer. We were really honored to sit down with Cynthia. She's an amazing person. She has such a bright light. When she walked in the studio, it just kind of, the energy shifted so high into this really wonderful, magnetic, like enticing uh, kind of vibe. So we had a great time talking with Cynthia, and we hope you enjoy her interview. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. You know, you're one of those people who walk into a room and the room gets a little bit brighter. Actually, I was just telling Bobby, uh, I woke up with a headache this morning. We've been doing a lot of interviews. It's just like I my energy when we were having lunch, I was just like, oh, man, I'm feeling like low energy. And as soon as you walked in the room and your smile and your presence came in the studio, I immediately just kind of filled up with, with energy just from you. Yes. That's so interesting that you said that because I happened to be doing a children's book about something like that. Oh, because yeah? people kept telling me I would take their thing from oh. them. 
and turn it into something else. Yeah, you were just talking about that. That's really interesting. I actually want to hear like more. So I want to talk all about your background, but I find in researching you and chatting with you uh, just even just now, you're such a dynamic person. Uh, and you're told us you had a background in design and like you're an amazing world renowned DJ and you're writing a children's book. I'm so amazed that you said I'm so dynamic because right now I feel so low because like media and everything is just so much right yeah. now. But, you know, we'll get into how I manage all that because yeah. it's just so much to manage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your aura is impressive. Your being is impressive. And I also, in reading about you and, and some stuff that you told us before the show, that you still live in the same bedroom that you were conceived in in new york isn't that funny that's pretty rare it's super rare and and i fact checked this because i asked my mom (laughs) (laughs) i'm filipino american we don't talk about sex ever yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i asked her what what you know room in the apartment did you make me in and she goes room of course and I was like I don't know it could have been the kitchen I mean you know you just never know but I had to ask because I was realizing the importance of that I was still in that apartment yeah you know and that is hasn't been an easy ride because of course they've tried to kick me out a few times Mm. they want the market value rate it's been 44 maybe 45 years wow you know being in the same apartment yeah more actually because my sister is several years older than me and it's quite valuable yeah. since First Avenue and 14th Street is now Trader Joe's and Target and brand new L train. So I get it. But, you know, where's the humanity in trying to kick people out and raising rents all the time? I mean, absolutely. And where does it go? Sometimes you wonder, you look at like the price of things, even the price of a glass of wine is like 18 or $19 now. And you're just like, where does this end? When is it possible, you know, like people in the generation before ours and going back further, most people with a, you know, a decent job who worked hard you were able to think that the dream was you could buy an apartment or Mm -hmm. buy I mean that doesn't exist for folks who even make a great salary now you know let's put it this way I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was like leasing a car is cheaper than owning and I was like that doesn't make sense oh my god it makes sense and I was like well that's all backwards I know it's crazy so I'm curious about because you're a DJ and you're into food, but I'm really curious about the scene when you were growing up in New York and like the 80s, 90s, you know, must have been such an inspirational time to be be someone who loved music and be in New York City. Wow, what a great question. And my first thought is immediately I'm so grateful that I could recall those times <laughs> because there was a chunk when I was going through a healing process about... Yeah, about but over 10 years ago where I couldn't remember the background of my childhood. Really? I had sustained a head injury. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I had a pretty severe concussion in 2008. And that's why my teeth are amazing because they're yeah. manufactured. Yeah, you do have great teeth. <laughs> they're great. And they better be because they were 13 grand. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, <clears throat> of course, I was, I, was, uh, I was in Sweden with my then husband and going down a hill I was at the top of the hill, actually, and looking down it, of course, no helmet, skateboard, longboard, which is oh, the longer wow. skateboard, which goes faster. Yeah. Because I've always been more athletic than I should be. Yeah. And there was a voice that was as loud as this mm-hmm. that said, Cynthia, this hill does not have your name on it. Yeah. And I was like, but, and then this other voice comes in and says, but everyone's waiting. 
So I realize now, you know, it took me some time to understand what that monologue was in my head. It was my intuition that could detect all the dangers around me that were subconscious to me, but yeah. told me, Sail does not have your name sure. on it. And then that guilty conscience voice that just sweeps in and messes things up. And I learned that in my adult life, that every time I didn't listen to that voice that said my name, I would get physically hurt, emotionally hurt, spiritually hurt. Wow. There's a lot of voices. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm someone who went through a traumatic accident as well. I was in a bus that went off a cliff when I was 21. And oh, exploded. my goodness. I was on a, it was a tour bus. Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, the trauma of just the kind of instant and I, the minute when you realize that you're fucked kind of, you know what I mean? That minute when you're like, Oh no, I've gotten hurt. You know what I mean? There's that instant. Did you have that? Like, let me tell you that that instant landed like a year later. Oh wow. So, cause in that moment, my, okay, so this is what happens. I go down the hill. I remember standing on the board and then I blink and then suddenly all I see is grass. Oh gosh. And I'm thinking, oh, and I'm sitting with my legs crossed suddenly and my hands on my lap. I'm like, oh, and I turn to the right and I see the hill that I was on. Yeah. And I see my, my husband running down the hill slow. Oh no. And I'm looking and I see him trip and he's in the air. And I go, oh. <laughs> and oh, I just God. keep going, oh, in my head. I look down at my hands and they're pooling up with blood. Uh. And I'm going, oh, I fell. And then I realized the blood was coming from my face. Oh, God. And then I realized I don't have teeth. <gasps> and then I realized, oh, I hit the ground. And then, yeah. you know, yeah. then all of a sudden everything felt so light. And yeah. <laughs> before I knew it, someone grabbed me and was shoving one of the teeth back in my mouth. And then I was yeah. bounced from hospital to hospital, broke my shoulder, broke my knee, had a hole in my other knee the size of like a kiwi. And it's amazing to see how everything has filled itself in and yeah. healed and everything. But what I didn't realize was injured was my memory, my cognition of what was actually going on right so that moment for me when I realized oh my god I've been really hurt and then the yeah. anxiety set in really literally was so much longer after the accident because I was at home experiencing what I now know as post-concussive syndrome oh wow which is basically living in a fog or living in some sort of amnesia state yeah. you cannot recall if somebody asked me what grammar school you went to I couldn't tell you it just yeah. nothing would move in my head Wow. And I started to understand something was like something's off when I realized I hadn't brushed my teeth in a month, wow. that the computers I was using were not touched and they had dust on them. Like something, time was not time. Right. It was like, whoa. Yeah, that, that's a scary. So bizarre. That's a scary place to be in. And it's interesting. I actually, and I don't know, mom, how you are about this. I know your memory is pr actually pretty good. Mine is actually not good at all. And people often come up to me and say, and I actually don't know if it could have anything to do with my accident. This is actually the first time I'm putting that together. But my memory is bad. And I noticed that I think to myself, I recently started keeping a journal because I'm like, it's like none of this ever happened if I don't remember it, which is such a scary feeling. Do, it, you, do you feel like totally, that? Totally, because for my in that healing process of coming to understand that I was losing my grip on all my responsibilities in life and everything, I realized that I didn't know what I didn't know I didn't know. Yeah. So it was basically just going day to day and just going, 
oh, there's food put in front of me. Yeah. You're like, oh, you know, like just kind of, it was this this incredible infantile state. Yeah. But then when I realized, because I was healing at the same time, realizing like, oh, crap. Yeah. I have responsibilities and access to pain. Stop started to come back, but I didn't understand who I was, yeah. nor understand the connection between the man who was my husband. I filed for a divorce. Wow. I couldn't be in the same apartment with someone I really had no more connection with. And then I started to understand there's something really wrong with me. Yeah. And then the anxiety set in and I realized I had lost myself. Yeah. Like didn't know who I was. That is such an intense and crazy and weird experience. Like such a unique experience. It was the, one of the hardest times of just totally loss of yourself. Totally lost. Yeah. Any understanding of who I was, I would go to family things and my mom's hair is white as paper and I couldn't remember her hair ever being black. Wow. My, I went to a wedding and I go to shake the hand of someone who's, this woman who's approaching me and she goes, she recoils and she's like, why are you trying to shake my hand? It was my aunt. Oh, and wow. I had no, you know, I could look you in the face and just Ugh. not understand who you were. I started to have intense anxiety because I didn't know. Well, my job was I was living off of savings. Oh, my gosh. I was not sure of what I was supposed to do. And I started to realize I can't even tell you who I am or what I'm good at and so on. So I started to seek a therapist, and they aligned me with cognitive behavioral therapy at, at Mount mm-hmm. Sinai, Beth Israel. And Was it forehead injuries specifically? Specifically. And it was a lot of exercise, little, you know, diagrams and drawings and what comes next and sequences and things like that. And I realized I could do this, but this doesn't help me. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about how you lost yourself and forgot who you are for that period of time. But I want to take you back to the beginning so we knew who, <laughs> know who you mm, were and who you are now. Who I was. Who and you that's... were and how you got to be there and speci- specifically relating to, you know, your experiences with the things that you're most interested in now, which is music and food and joy. So I'm well, going to ask you about, I want to take you back to that question going about, back. Yeah. about growing up in the 80s and 90s and the music scene. And then also I really want to know my, the two-parter is I guess just, you know, we know New York to be a certain way now, a very kind of clean version of old New mm-hmm. York in a lot of ways. But there's things that are so distinctly New York. And I guess I want to know about that whole the smell in the air, everything, like what was like, you know, cooking up in your family's kitchen, what was on the street, like, and how that all, all like, take us there to those I times I love in thinking early about life. this. I mean, I really love thinking about it. As far as, as far as food goes, there was the Baskin Robbins on the corner that was like, I wanted to eat there every day. Yeah. <laughs> my mom and my babysitters cooked Filipino food like almost all the time. All, all things rice, all things chicken, things pork. You know, yeah. things with vinegar. Yeah. That was just like the smell. Yeah. And music is very interesting because I grew up at the start of MTV mm-hmm. and that's all I was hearing. You know, yeah. like early Madonna, Cool and the Gang, you step on TV. And the environment, <laughs> which is like, oh my God. If you know Stytown today, you would not understand what Stytown was like back then, where we could not go to Avenue A because you could actually get killed. Yeah. Mm. Forget going to B or C or D. There was a whole poem about it. I'm not even going to say it because it's so grim. (laughs) But on the corner, there were always drug dealers, and we had a homeless person eating in our um, stairwell all the time. 
And the food around was just, you know, like little fried chicken mm-hmm. joints and, you know, things like that. And my memories of that, plus going around and seeing these funny, like, sex uh, sex shops and, like, you go to Times Square and you yeah. see Times Square before was, like, theaters uh, of, like, that kind of stuff. And to think about it now, it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah. I don't miss those days. <laughs> no, but it's interesting and it's formative. And I think, you know, it speaks to what people's passions are like when they grow up and just living in a, in a, like, honestly, a hostile, in a beautiful environment. But New York in that time, like, yeah. is a, it was a more hostile place. Incredibly. And how yeah. you, and it's interesting how you are someone who radiates like love and positivity and, you know, but you also have a definite sense of like, uh, of, culture and of you know you're immersed in music and something that i think is the most interesting that bobby and i were both listening to your podcast which airs on hrn uh primary foods and i'm just wondering how like with you know what were your primary and i want you to talk about that concept Mm -hmm. um a bit but like what was filling you up in that time in your life in your early life oh in my early life okay so let's talk about primary food for a second so we think about the food that, like, I'm looking at this guy here at Roberta's tearing an awesome piece of bread. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I'm totally mesmerized by yeah. it. <laughs> the food that we eat, you know, we put in our mouth, chew and swallow. Yeah. We consider that secondary, uh, secondary food. And primary food is everything else in life that nourishes you before you eat. This is something I learned at nutrition school at IIN, which I really needed to understand because it helped put me in some sort of an understanding of how to nourish my soul on top of stuff my stomach, yeah. you know. So you'll notice that the higher quality primary foods you have, the better quality secondary foods you tend to eat, and, and adversely. So let's say you have a terrible job, terrible primary food, ugh, yeah. terrible relationships, ugh. What do you eat? A lot of really crappy stuff yeah. pretty much mm-hmm. all the time. You have really wonderful relationships and wonderful setting and this wonderful primary food that's nourishing you visually, psychologically, intimately, then, you know, you tend to want to cook dinner and sit and enjoy that and have these moments. And those moments are also primary food, those social moments of gathering and so forth. So that became really important in my understanding of how to keep moving forward and at least have an understanding of what toxicity I could control in my life and what joy I could create. That's a fantastic concept. Yeah, it's it's really easy. And you think about like, we're not really taught that because at least in our culture, we're just taught to stuff ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like literally, you know, there's a, a serving that's there and you're supposed to just eat the whole to thing. To finish it. Yeah. yeah, you just finish it. But in other cultures, it's like eat till you're satisfied. Right. Well, uh, conversely, we're not necessarily taught to stuff ourselves with our primary foods. Oh, definitely right? not. Those because are not, yeah. then it's, it's selfish. selfish. Yeah. Uh, exactly <laughs> and we're in a time where i think we're we're past that yeah it's like we're starting we better to be we have to be yeah i'm just gonna say we are yeah. <laughs> so that we can keep teaching that we are because yes. it's yes. too important and for <clears throat> for youth to understand that there has to be more to life than staring at instagram and, and counting likes and so on like that yeah. is not going to nourish you that'll vanish that doesn't matter so that kind of stuff for me music yeah. It's a major primary food in my healing, especially in that time in 2008, because it was only until, and I had mentioned I was going through that cognitive behavioral therapy, still not being able to access who I was, only until I heard this Paul Anka song, Lonely Boy, did I remember this moment in 
my childhood, I think it was nine, with my uncle and my wow. niece in the car, and I was suddenly there. Yeah. And I realized, this is how I will heal from this. It's like the movie Awakenings. It's Remember very much like that. Yeah. 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 And I would just keep listening to music, and it was, I, I just made it everything, I made everything I did, like, involving music. Yeah. And doing hospice volunteer work, bringing music in, DJing things for literally a penny. Yeah. <laughs> just so I could get the treatment right. and just stealing things off of Napster, you know, yeah. downloading MP3s <laughs> left and right yeah. and just understanding like this is how I'm going to move forward. And you were giving it to others. You weren't just I didn't even yourself. realize that right. part. Yeah. yeah. And that's where it started to grow is like that's why then actual jobs came because I didn't realize I was building a community and touching people. It literally was so about me. I was like I'm yeah. so lost. And once I got to understand that and then realized, oh, this is a, a, a people work, Yeah, you know? Well, it's interesting. The other day I was talking with someone and this particular person doesn't like themselves, right? This is mm -hmm. a person who has a lot of trouble with self-love. Mm -hmm. And they were like, I don't understand how to do it. I don't understand how to like myself. And in that, it's like I'm hearing a similarity, not that you didn't like yourself, but I don't understand even how to feel like myself again, right? And so my mm -hmm. suggestion to this person, I was like, well, I think to like yourself or to be genuine or to be yourself or to feel good in your body really is to like do things that make you like yourself, you know? So giving to your community, uh, DJing in hospice, working with kids, work, you know, volunteering, doing that stuff. Like those are things that bring you back to yourself. Whether I call it, makes, it be what you want. Yeah. That's a great, yeah. does yeah. that resonate at all? Does that seem like it, like you're, it seems like you're saying to me that like to us that, the work you were doing, putting it outwards, helped you get back to yourself inwards. I truly believe that inherently we like ourselves. Yeah. Because yeah. we are constantly making new cells. Yeah. And I think until we stop making new cells, we are not, you know, producing and being productive. But there are interrupters. That's exactly. That's what I do for a living. I help people find their interrupters. <laughs> There's those right. social interrupters, family yeah. Sometimes Cultural. maybe you don't like yourself because the people in your family are feeding you some funky yeah. vibes that you don't even realize. Yeah. I actually call it the lenses of perception. I think in our growing, we develop almost like when you go to the eye doctor and the oculator, they yeah. give you the lenses. Mm -hmm. And the glasses that we have, have some of them are shattered. And sure. it's a shame because sure. once we see what that is, then the clarity of the of the beauty of who you are and the wealth of who you are is there. You just have to find out where those distortions are. Yeah. It's it's a very obviously multi-layered uh, conversation because in, in conversations I've had with people who have a similar feeling about themselves, there tend to be some sort of maybe early sexual trauma, mm -hmm. um, disrespect to their bodies that makes yeah. them not want to connect to themselves and wish they were just someone else. Yeah or wish that something didn't happen. I'd like to talk to people about what they wish was different. And, you know, the person that you wish you could be and the person you are now, What what's the differences? Right. And sometimes you can hear what has happened to a person when they tell you right. what the differences are. And in the pursuit of being happy, which is how I maintain my health now, five yeah. years now, my anniversary of my diagnosis. God, it's amazing to say that. Yeah. That. Part of my health and well-being is, you know, just constantly being cognizant of what I'm happy about and to stay happy, yeah. even in a, in a tough time. I learned to understand, like, what are those things that keep the unhappiness in my life? Mm -hmm. 
And then what are the things that do spark that happiness? Yeah, absolutely. They're, yeah. you know, they're really called core self-limiting negative beliefs. Mm. And they're not even true. They're not true. That's, That's the crazy thing. Yeah. Abby always asks that. She says, what is your negative belief at your, about, about yourself? yourself? And then... Then once you figure out that it, what that is, then I say, what would you rather believe about yourself? And that's oh, yeah. how the healing takes yeah. place. It's actually not that complicated. And it really isn't. I'm so glad nothing got triggered for me when you said that. <laughs> I was like, oh. So you mentioned five years since your diagnosis. So yeah. what was your diagnosis? I was diagnosed in 2013 with a pretty aggressive, what's the full term? Because I haven't said it in so many years. I'm so glad. Um, invasive ductal carcinoma, breast cancer. Suspect stage two. They found the, so I had been doing exams. Yeah. <clears throat> I just didn't know that I had to compare my nipples to one another. Oh, yeah. So when they found the, the lump in my breast, it was behind my nipple. You know, we, we have the diagrams of looking in your armpit, right. you're yeah. in the shower, yeah. you're doing the, exactly. you know, the clock around yeah. your, and then, you know, you don't really think about that part. Yeah. Especially since when you're doing an exam, you're, you're, nipples are actually being like activated by them and you totally just don't know, yeah. you know so that's when I had my exam I was feeling unwell for a solid two years oh wow yeah I just kind of decline and there was nothing you could really say was wrong with me all the doctors were like well, you had this head injury some years ago right maybe you're still in the thing mm. and I was like you know what something's telling me there's something else so every time I was very ill fatigued nauseous. I would make an appointment with the doctor. I was very diligent about this. I would go. And of course you get to the doctor and you're like, fine. Right. Yeah. And you're like, I swear I was feeling, and they're, they're yeah, looking yeah. at you like, what can I do? You're okay right now. Yeah. So they said, come when you're sick. And I said, I will just come in. They're like, just come in. Yeah. So one morning I wake up with that nausea. I was waking up with nausea and just like this fog and just overall terrible feeling. I go into the doctor and I pass out on oh. the exam table. Oh, my God. I got there about 11. I wake up. It's like 2 or something. And I'm like, the light's off. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, they let me sleep here. This is very strange. And I felt guilty. I start sitting up and I'm rattling, you know, like rustling the paper. The nurse comes in. And she goes, oh, you're awake. So we can examine you now. And I was like, thinking, well, thanks for not examining me while I'm asleep. That's great. <laughs> so I said to her when she said that, great, because I feel really sick. And then I make this gesture around my right shoulder and I go, and there's something wrong here. Wow. And I didn't even know why I did wow. that. I, I, to this day, it's just like, you know. You the body say, knows. You your know. body knows you're making yeah. it. Yeah. You know, but there's sure. all these interrupters. So I went like this, made this circular shape around my right chest, right shoulder area. And I said, there's something wrong here. And I said, and it feels like static outside of my body. And it feels like an itch I can't scratch. Wow. And she was like, okay. So then she says, well, let's look at your other side first. I lay back. She examines my left breast fine. She's examining my right breast, and then she stops. And I was like, why'd you stop? And she goes, shh, I do this very methodically. And then she prescribed me for a biopsy. Mm -hmm. So I was diagnosed in, in 2015, March, with, um, with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it was the HER2 type, which is quite aggressive, but they were saying, hey, this is great because there's this drug called Herceptin, mm -hmm. which is very aggressive people 10 years ago today who were diagnosed with a HER2 are not around today. So this is incredibly good wow. in your favor. I was a triple positive. Wow. 
of course, I become allergic to Herceptin. Oh, my goodness. And I'm literally yanked off of it at the end of the year. And I ask my doctor at Sloan Kettering, Dr. Jacqueline Bromberg, love her. All right, I'm allergic to Herceptin. This is like the dream drug. What's the, you know, CVS version, the Kirkland version? She's like, there isn't one. Yeah. And I was like, okay, seriously, no, seriously. Yeah. She said, there isn't one. And I said, what do I do? And she said, be happy. Yeah. And of course, I was like, what the hell is she telling me? (laughs) And I was like, what? And, you know, I'm sitting there smiling, of course, being very obedient, going, yes, okay. But I'm in the lift home, and I'm fuming. I'm pissed. I'm like, what the hell kind of weird advice is that? The second I get home, sit on my sofa, I say, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And then at that same time, all these... um, immunotherapies were popping up. Yeah. And the purpose of the immunotherapy treatment was to boost your immune system. And if being happy was the natural way I could try to do that on my own, Mm -hmm. I realized that's why the other women in my support groups who were doing the 50 grand hyperbaric oxygen treatments in Switzerland and Germany, doing all the, you know, cleanses didn't survive Mm -hmm. because they were constantly unhappy. Yeah. So what were your primary and also your secondary foods during this time to try to feed your soul and your body to make yourself happy to, to you know, go forward in this? Well, the first two things that came to mind that nourished me the most were petting my dog mm-hmm. a lot, a lot. She's in a lot of my photos. I'm losing go hair doggies. and she's getting... Uh-huh. Go doggies, animals, pets. What kind of dog is she? She's... <laughs> she's a Shih Tzu Terrier mix, and at the shelter they called her a shittier. <laughs> I always have to say that because it's so special. That's cute. And then the second primary food that popped into my head was cutting people out. Wow. Okay, yeah. can you talk to us about that? Family, some family included. Because, you know, you go through a thing like that, and suddenly these health experts with no experience come in, and they tell you everything you did wrong, right. even though they have no idea what you did wrong. And all of that toxic conversation for me as a very obedient person to my elders was like you know what actually I don't need to answer these calls yeah you know and I cut a lot of things like that out yeah people were sending me links about going vegan and I was like as vegan when I was diagnosed what are you talking about you know like all these things people became experts because of their own fears of what cancer meant to them right and then I understood for myself you know what but that's them and in order to nourish myself I need more Silence. Right, silence. And that silence was my primary food. Wow. Beautiful. You know, it actually reminds me of what we talked about when you first came in, about the energy you brought into us. I always call it energy going out, energy going in, and to have a measurement, like a a meter that tells you when you're draining, when you're filling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in a time like when your body is being taxed by literally things being pumped into your veins, that the people who are pumping it in are they're wearing like hazmat suits. Yeah. You really need to have your space. Yeah, you really if we don't give ourselves our space or our time. I had found that through these very difficult, I'm going to say grieving processes of losing parts of my body because yeah. I had a double mastectomy, no reconstruction, mm. losing my mind, losing my memory, lo- yeah. you know, all these things. What I found in the common thread was me time, mm. beating myself solo. Right. And I don't mean alone because yes. alone kind of feels like something's missing. Yeah. But solo and taking the time, like exquisitely slow to prepare my egg. Yeah. Or to steam my cabbage. 
yeah, <laughs> like that, yes. that time to slow it down. Through mindfulness. It was so important to have that from start to finish, which is washing the dishes and all, because it was the only thing I could control to completion. Yeah. And then enjoy, and then I would, you know, turn my phone off, or if I wanted, I'd stare at Facebook, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. To create that meal that wasn't me entertaining anybody but myself was so important. Yeah. It, it was so important. It's a wonderful message. It really is. We're going to take a very quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to have more with Cynthia Cherish. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. Cynthia. I have a, I have a great story yes. to tell about self-preservation. Just a quick story about um, The Little Princess. It was a movie years ago with Shirley Temple. And it's a movie that um, she has major losses. She loses her mother. She loses the caretaker. She's in India. She loses her father goes off to war. And they send her to New York to um, a school, boarding school. And she's treated very well because her father had money. And there's a knock on the door. And the message is, is that it's her birthday. So there's presents all over. The message is her father has died and there's no more money. Mm. So now every single thing is gone. The headmistress of the school realizes there's no money, so she rips the clothes off her back, puts Arsh. on rags, <laughs> and say, go up to the cellar, up, up to the attic. You are now the scullery maid. and You will take care of us and serve us. She goes up to the attic. This is Shirley Temple, right? <sighs> she goes up to the attic, and it's, it's dirty. There's rats and dirt, and it's so lonely and so scary. She's lost everything. And she finds this stick. and She draws a circle in the dirt on the floor, this big circle, and she steps over the imaginary boundary. And she curls up in the circle. And she's safe. I love that story. This, so that's what you created. Tough. You created this safety of circle for yourself. Whoever wrote that, <laughs> first of all, thank you, but weird. Yeah. Uh, but still, awesome. And, and I agree. And my yes and to that is the work that I do at Rikers Island. Yeah, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I DJ in the prison, which is really interesting to say because they let me bring in contraband, which is basically just power cables. Right. Those aren't allowed because those are dangerous. Mm. I bring music and I do music for events, different events that happen in there, whether it's creative writing or just, quote, dance events, which you're never really allowed to dance. You're supposed to sit in your seat and just move. Mm -hmm. You can't touch anyone. Uh, but I realized because every time I'd leave, 
I would start feeling guilty because I could leave. I could go home, go over that long bridge. Some of the women in there would go, have a nice trip home, and they were genuinely happy about that. And I realized to survive, you had to create your circle that you could step in, no matter what the environment around you was. That's not easy to do. That sometimes takes an insane amount of trauma for you to understand, fuck it, I'm making my circle, then you do it. But (laughs) it doesn't happen right away, you know? And I understand because I've spoken with a lot of people who are literally in tears are like, how do I make that? I'm like, you can't make that? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. then I have to have compassion that, oh, you can't make that. Okay, I hear you, but let's try to figure out how you can make that and then just work with people about that. I think that, of course, if you could find a corner in your home and I'm tired of the term safe space, just me space. Yeah. You know, just a me space. Or yeah. some women I know literally sit in their car and they're yeah. like, I'm good in here. <laughs> like, yeah. Windows rolled up, music or no music, sure. I'm good. You know, just a place where you could reset. We know how to charge our phones, but we don't know how to charge ourselves. And I think that it could be a bath. Yeah. You know, it Absolutely. could be. I mean, I take long baths. That's I nice. love it. Yeah. Um, it could be the time that you decide for yourself. Sure. But it's like, it has to be something you decide. Yeah. You know, with the thought of mindfulness, which is such a big word now, but what it really comes down to is just being in the moment. Yeah. One of the sweetest books I've ever seen is this little book about how you find mindfulness in any moment when you're washing your hands. Sure. Certainly with water of any kind. You know, whatever you're doing in that moment, you're fully present and experiencing all the sensory, all the, how you fill up. Sure, sure. And of course, also, not always easy to access if you're going through so much trauma that you're buzzing. Which is in your head. Which is in your head. You know, to me, meditation is losing your head, losing your mind. Sure. Right? I think of it like changing the channel. I'm like, okay. Because I don't, sometimes, you know, there's reward to holding on to this stuff. So I'm like, okay, let me not, I can't get rid of this anger. I'm not done with it. You know, I've been there. So I'll just change the channel. It's still there. That's a really great way of putting it. We actually were chatting with somebody yesterday who had experienced like a really significant loss. um, And we're talking about uh, not being sad anymore as Mm. feeling difficult and very complicated because there's something in moving away from the sadness, you know, when somebody passes away or really anything. But in this specific case, we're talking about someone passing away because that means like you're almost like, oh, God, if I'm if I stop being sad about it, then it's they're it, they're gone or this experience is I'm dishonoring compromised yeah. in some way. So Fair I, enough. I yeah. love the analogy of changing the channel because it yeah. makes it so much easier to be like, I don't have to, like, get rid of this. This isn't no. gone forever, but I can Change the channel. What a, what a really enlightening You get rid of way. it when you're done. Right. You know, we process things. It could be a minute. It could be 12 years you process yeah. a thing. Yeah. Channel, you're in New York. If you're listening, channel two and four and five, seven, nine <laughs> and 11 exist at the same time. Exactly. You. It's just a matter of what you choose to entertain yourself with. Totally. And I think that's the important part, like that you choose because the saddest part of life for me has always been when I thought I had no choice right. and that things were out of control, then anxiety and sadness and anger would step in. But when I realized even the shittiest moments, I was still in control of a thing, something, somewhere, totally. then I was good. Well, that's what really resonated with me when you were talking about both your experience with your accident and with cancer is that what a what a time that you have no choice. You're, you've been injured mm-hmm. and you have 
you know, you have cancer. And so you don't have choice on whether those things, those things happened. Right. And I guess then you find the choice and the empowerment and how you decide to handle them. And it sounds like when I was especially struck by it, when you were talking about creating some space for yourself and some time and, you know, just your own personal healing solo time, that sounds very powerful in a time when there is a lot happening onto you. It feel it resonated with me as a way of you really taking back some power and control. Does it feel like that to you? It is hundred percent about that. Yeah. And like I said, the women that I've worked with in Rikers, they kind of, supported that whole idea for me that, you know, even in the most difficult situations, you have babies at home or whatever is happening, that you could still choose to to keep your mind, mm-hmm. you know, and just to keep an understanding of, okay, what's happening and, you know, what am I going to do in this moment for myself to, sometimes literally I would just pet my hand. Mm. I didn't need to be with someone else petting my own hand and mm. just find that whatever that happens chemically, that oxytocin kick, just to just to comfort myself. Yeah. Because I knew, like, I just had to choose in the moment for myself. Sitting in the chemo chair and having that moment of terrified, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die, die, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And I had this realization that actually there are only really, if you distill it down, four ways that we die, like really just it, by accident, by nature, by the hands of someone else or by your own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they overlap. Yeah. But then I turned into, well, then how do I choose to live? Mm. And I was like, okay, so if, they're re- if it really boils down to that, then there's only one way to live, and that is your choice. Yeah. Even, in things, even if things around you you can't control because it's not your choice or you're doing, there's still ways for you to understand, all right, well, for me, this is what I'm going to do about it. Right. You know, and sometimes it's something active and sometimes it's something where you acquiesce. You know, there's all kinds of directions you can go in a, in a, in a space. But to tell yourself that you're stuck, you're actually choosing something. Yeah. You're choosing stuck. Yeah. Because it's comfortable or you want saving or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But try, I'm just going to invite people to try the other thing. Totally. You know, just try it. I think that's a good way of putting it. And it's a little low pressure way of putting it. Because a lot of times when you're in a situation where you're feeling really you know, just dissolved and down and sad and scared and terrified. It's so hard to hear, be like, well, you really should, you know what I mean? But it's such a, to put it like, hey, just try it. Like, you know, just give it a whirl. It doesn't work. That's, a, you know what I mean? Just try it. Just try it. So you are a reverend. Yes, I am. And I'm really curious about that. And when you became a reverend and why and what that experience is like and how it related to, how it relates to your um, relationship with primary foods. So I got the news that I was ill. Of course, I'm thinking I have no relationship with God. Mm. Yeah. I'm in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) It really kind of was like that. I'm kind of being a little bit like jokey about it, but it kind of was like that feeling. I was born and raised Catholic, Filipino-American, went through all of that. I call myself a recovering Catholic. I feel like (laughs) I had to get through that to understand what spirituality was for me Mm. and not necessarily a formalized God religion, you know, obedient structure doesn't work for me <laughs> so I had to understand like all right well then if I were to understand God in this chapter of my life then I just want it to be about being good you know and all the good things mm-hmm. and I reached out to a couple of people I know who do ceremonies and I was thinking about well you know I have this insight because I'm being faced with the most scariest thing 
this insight about gratitude and like living in life, and I want to share that while I can. I really thought my time was limited, and I was wrong, thank God. Mm. But uh, then I was invited to meet with a wonderful community that's in Florida, and they ordained me here in New York because there was a reverend up here that said we can just welcome you in. Oh, wow. So I have my divinity certification and everything, and can do weddings and ceremonies of any and every kind. Right. And they all come from my point of view of understanding the big picture, the spiritual picture, our goals and where we came from to celebrate what we're celebrating in this moment. And even if it's the loss of someone, you know, it's still a completion. It's still a feeling of you did it, you know, and or just we appreciate everything that you've brought for us. Yeah. It's never easy but it's something that I've been able to communicate within myself and can speak with people about and touch people that way it's yeah. special work you yeah. know I would love to encourage anyone who feels like they can talk to people that way to do it because it's needed it's very needed what did you what was the process of the process was first uh, a lot of talking back and forth with those who were coaching me uh, coming to an honest understanding of why I wanted to do this work and who I wanted to do it for, uh, some membership fees, and then getting official in New York City and to the big book, they call it, <laughs> downtown, into the, a registrar where you can then do actual efficient uh, wed wor wedding work. Yeah, It's beautiful. I love it. And the idea of it being sparked, you know, I'm, I'm working with people who are starting their lives together. It's yeah. a beautiful start. And knowing that it came from me thinking my life was ending, it just keeps my longevity and my sense of just spread out there, like, really strong. Yeah. So I think in these moments where you feel like, oh, like, find these things that, like, pull out these joyful things in you, if you right. can find that. You know. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, we kind of ask everyone a similar question at the towards the end of an interview on processing, mm -hmm. and it is: What would you give? What kind of advice would you give yourself at the beginning of your journey? And your uh, whatever whatever that means to you in this case, it can be at the beginning of your diagnosis, or you know, right after your accident happened. But if you could have told your younger, scared, unsure self something that you feel like would have helped you with this process, what would that what would that be? Mm, oh, I love this question. <laughs> I would say I would tell myself that happiness isn't about happiness and finding health isn't about the things you don't have that you wish you had or could get. But it's more about getting rid of the things you have that you don't want because that you could control. I've always had control struggles with myself and myself Yeah. growing up. Oh, I need this now. Right. I don't have this yet. Yeah. Why am I not at this place yet? You know, all these things. But I realize there's a process and there's a time frame and there's a schedule for things just by nature, you know, just in just life. But the more you get rid of the things in life that you have that you don't want the better you feel and you realize that the, those funky feelings may not be coming from all this lack stuff, but just too much stuff. Burden. Yeah. Burden. Totally. Burden is the word. Totally. So I had unburdened, unburdened myself of a lot of things. And, and if I, 
I think if I read that at the start of some of those hardest times, I could have been like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, Marie Kondo was onto something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she really was. Really, it's it's very sage advice. It yeah. really is. And it's like giving yourself, a, that, that advice that speaks to me in terms of, it just feels like giving yourself a break too and putting oh, yourself. Yeah. For, permission you know I mean? to let go. Yeah. Letting go is a very high practice. I fully respect my need to rest now. Mm. I didn't. I was a proud workaholic. Mm. Working, you know, you get it. Yeah. Working around, proud to say I had clients from East Coast to Asia to West Coast. Yeah. Which meant I slept four hours. Right. Because the internet let me do it. Sure. You know, so I was proud to say I was burning a candle both ends and the middle. How good am I? But then I got so sick. Right. You know, and just like lost myself through that and realized no one cares. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. No one even cares. So now I understand the importance of getting that rest yeah. in. And that rest comes, if rest is great, primary food, which yeah. comes in the form of firstly, unburdening yourself totally. of things. And this is this is definitely a maybe controversial thing to say, but two girlfriends of mine had said it to me when they lost a parent that things started to shift for them about the loss when they started to understand how they in ways were benefiting from not having the burden of the mm -hmm. sadness or the worry and so on. Mm -hmm. I am both my parents, so I don't know that. But when they were telling me that something I said to them made them think of that, I made note and I thought that was very interesting. It is. We were just talking about that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you validate it. Good. Yeah. I was worried. We, so, no, so. not at all. I was just, we were t chatting with um, a woman earlier today about her specific loss of a parent, and I was relating to it, and so as was Bobby, uh, when I lost my dad two years ago, t uh, tomorrow actually, um, how I was, you know, I wanted him to die at a certain point because I just was, you know, and then I felt guilt about that and then letting that go felt like a big deal. And it's so major. Yeah, really Thank is. you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's special. It's a complicated feeling. You know what I mean? I think grief and guilt, it's all such a web, but I think like if one of the many beautiful things you've said to us today that I want to really remember to take with me at least is just about prioritizing your own self. Like, and, you know, what you need and what you don't need. And I think a lot of what you don't, I don't think, I think people think a lot more about what they do need than oh, what they sure. don't need. And I think it's for very sure. important that you've, the best, the most profound message that I think I've personally gained today from you is learning about what you don't need. Yeah, that's important. And and those things come in interesting shapes and forms. Yeah. They can come in for, I'll tell you, because I want to share personal things that I'm yeah. sharing, like what's real for me, something, let's say that I don't need, that I feel is burning me, that I have to figure out what to do with it. I did a photo essay that was 9-11 related mm. back in 2001. It was in Time Magazine and so on. I have about 9,000 prints left in storage. Wow. I don't want it. And yeah. I have to figure out where to put it and like mm. to find it a, a respectful place for it and so forth. And I want to unburden myself of that. So those things come in funny shapes. They're, they're, they they could be, sure do. It could be something on the shelf that's just dusty and weird, and you're like, I'm tired of looking at it. Get yeah. rid of it. Right. Well, Recycle I'd like it. to add to that my very dear friend who we talk about a lot, Kathy, just got a very serious diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. She's also a breast cancer survivor 20 years ago. But um, she's a, a, a worker, you know, from the start. So she started after her surgery. She had surgery to remove part of her pancreas. 
she started sifting through everything in her entire house, getting rid of things she had had for years and years and sifting and sorting. I kept saying, Kathy, what are you doing all this work for? And she said, I just need to let go of things mm-hmm. right now so that I can be clearer for my healing. Totally. Yeah. That's that's a great way to also, in the same vein, you know, really getting rid of the things that you have that you don't want. And then also, you know, how do you take time and rest and honor yourself? People ask me, you know, I need some advice. I can't do it. Yeah. The way I start, I always make my bed. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Same. Me too. Always. And I didn't do that for maybe 30 years of my life. Hmm. But once I started doing that, it was just kind of the start of the day. And then I set my, myself up for a very nice end of the day. Totally. Absolutely. That's important. And a lot of, I understand I'm not judging, a lot of people don't do that. Yeah. But it feels really good once you get into that regular it activity. Does. It's, proce- yeah. it's process and it's treating your space with a certain amount of, you know, the respect and then also being able like you said start starting the day nice and ending the day nice and i just want to add one other thing about it it doesn't have to be an hour of rest you know i have a body worker that i know very well is wonderful and she taught me to just literally lie down for literally a minute and yeah. just notice myself breathing i found it was so refreshing for me i never rest i never take a nap yeah never. that one minute so mindfulness is about the mindfulness minutes or moments it true. doesn't have to be yeah, very hours. true Absolutely. And if you have a hard time with staying still and resting like that, then I have a tip. Make sure your eyes are covered with something very mm. thick and light mm-hmm. because light coming through your eyelids keeps anxiety totally. alive, totally. <laughs> you know? So if you are having a difficult time resting, I sleep very well considering all the stuff, <laughs> but it's because I make sure that my eyes are fully blacked out, blackout curtains, yep. all of that, you yep. know, a good melatonin helps, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. Yep. So I think that a lot of the loss feeling and the control feelings that we have that we battle with like that that's the thing like if you're someone who feels like you don't have control center yourself and just find those little things that you can tossing a bottle away is an act of control yeah and is. if you do that 30 times a day you're in control totally you know what I mean? <laughs> that's <laughs> it's a very good point weirdly simple as that yeah it really and is. that's the formula in in a way that gets me to be able to walk through these streets smiling, even though there's literally chaos everywhere. I walk into a room, I have no chaos about me. Yeah, that's true. But I'm you coming don't... from all kinds of chaos. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. Cynthia, it was amazing to talk to you. And we, before we go, I want to, you to just tell us where we can find you, follow you, what you're working on that you want people to know about. I would say the easiest way to find everything is just the Instagram hub. That would be at DJ Cherish the Love and Love is spelled L U V because Instagram didn't let me spell L O V E. It's one letter too long. <laughs> but that's basically it. DJ Cherish the Love. And you'll see I'll be doing work with Cancer Con this year. Um, just all kinds of stuff. Cool. There's so much. I just like to, I do a lot of different types of work, but it all boils down to people work. It's yeah. that simple. Yeah. Well, this was a beautiful conversation. And thank you, thank you for coming on and being so vulnerable and so open. I know these talks can be challenging sometimes to have, and it's a lo- it's a very generous gift to give people um, oh, thank you. your time and to give us your time and just to be so open. And I, I hope that it's, you know, I think that these conversations are reaching people and helping them get through, you know, whatever kind of stuff is in their day, just knowing pe- people just knowing they're not alone is very valuable. Yeah, HRN has good reach. Yeah, <laughs> it really I've had does. over the years some very lovely random Facebook messages from people who just 
tuned into a thing and yeah. they're like, thank you for that. Yep. So it's great. Thank you both. Thank you. So I'm doing this outro today solo. Unfortunately, Bobby couldn't join me, but we still have some interesting facts about Cynthia's episode. And I kind of wanted to focus on DJing because Cynthia is an amazing DJ. So I'm just going to tell you guys a little bit about the history of DJing. Um, This information is mostly from Wikipedia. Uh, If you have a moment or a little extra change in your pocket to donate to Wikipedia, it really helps for tons of research projects. Um, So DJing is the act of playing existing recorded music for a live audience. In 1935, American radio commentator Walter Winchell coined the term, quote, disc jockey, which is the combination of a disc referring to a disc-shaped phonograph record and jockey, which is an operator of a machine, or this is for me, or a horse, um, which I guess is a machine that's alive. I don't know. So to describe, uh, to describe radio announcer Martin Block, who was the first radio announcer to gain widespread fame for playing popular recorded music on the air. In 1943, radio DJ Jimmy Seville launched the world's first DJ dance party by playing jazz records in the upstairs function room of the Loyal Order of Ancient Shepherds in Otley, England. Uh, that sounds a little bit spooky, but I'm intrigued. In 1947, he claims to have become the first DJ to use twin turntables for continuous play. In the late 1950s, jumping up a bit, sound systems, a new form of public entertainment, were developed in the ghettos of Kingston, Jamaica. Promoters who called themselves DJs would throw large parties in the streets that centered on the disc jockey called The Selector who played dance music from a large, loud PA system and bantered over the music with a boastful, rhythmic, and chanting style called toasting. These parties quickly became profitable for the promoters who would sell admission, food, and alcohol, leading to fierce competition between DJs for the biggest sound system and newest records. That sounds like a really fun party to be at. Uh, In 1973, jumping up a couple decades, Jamaican-born DJ Cool Herc, anyone who is a hip-hop head or fan will be familiar with Cool Herc. Um, He was widely regarded as the founder of hip-hop, performed at block parties in the Bronx, and developed a technique of mixing back and forth between two identical records to extend the rhythmic instrumental segment. Or break. Turntablism, the art of using turntables, not only to play music, but to manipulate sound and create original music, began to develop. In the 70s also, we get a little something, a little blend of funk and a little blend of soul that eventually becomes known as disco. Ever heard of it? Um, And it takes over the pop charts in the U.S. and Europe, causing discotheques to experience a rebirth. Unlike many late 60s, nightclubs which featured live bands discotheques used dj's selection and mixing of records as entertainment in 1975 record pools began providing dj's access to newer music from the industry in an efficient method okay then we're going to hop up to the 80s and in detroit uh we get kind of the birth of the detroit club scene and also techno um detroit's between chicago and new york and Detroit techno artists combine elements of Chicago house and New York garage along with European imports to form what we now know as techno. Techno distanced itself from disco's roots by becoming almost purely electronic. 
with synthesized beats. And in 1985, the Winter Music Conference started in Fort Lauderdale, Florida and became a premier electronic music conference for dance music and disc jockeys. So thank you very much to Wikipedia for that rip from the headlines uh, information about the history of DJing. Now, I want to tell a small story about one of the world's most famous DJs. Uh, now, I want to also preface this by saying this is hearsay, but I had a friend who used to work at a very prominent hotel in uh, New York City as a room service delivery person. And he delivered a steak and french fries up to Paul Oakenfold, allegedly, um, one time. And Paul Oakenfold found that when he took a bite of the steak while my friend was still in the room, he found it to be too salty. And so as my friend is leaving, Paul is complaining. He's like, get a manager. He's getting irate. And as my friend is at the door of the hotel to leave Paul Oakenfold's room, he feels something slimy and warm hit the back of his head. And upon turning around, it is the oversalted steak. So <laughs> little note, just be careful of, uh, you know, DJs, I guess maybe they have a temper if their salt, if their steak is too salty, but we also owe DJs so much because it is such a wonderful job to provide people with that kind of like entertainment and make parties better and make us all dance. And we are super, super, super grateful to have them. And we were so grateful to have Cynthia and her amazing energy um, with us. She's an incredible DJ. She's also a reverend and she performs weddings and she then will DJ the wedding. She DJed our HRN 10th anniversary gala. It was an incredible party. She's one of the coolest people around and we really, really love talking to her. So we hope you enjoyed uh, her episode. And again, please check her out at DJ Cherish the Love. That's DJ Cherish the L-U-V on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Processing. And don't forget to uh, rate, review, subscribe, download to our show and all the other wonderful shows on HRN. And please consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org and becoming a member to support Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we are member supported and we love you guys and we're so happy to be part of the HRN family and thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.